Hello everybody and welcome to the show. My name is James Shulcock and today I am chatting with Dr. Ed Roberts. Ed is a neuroscientist at um, Imperial University in London, um, focusing on brain stimulation, behavioral experiments to investigate brain function. Um, He takes a particular look at um, brain structure and cognitive tasks, um, particularly with experts, uh, whether that's fighter pilots, uh, black belt karate experts, or people in the financial world who are involved in financial decision making. Um, Ed has now moved on actually from Imperial. He he is head of cognition at uh, GlaxoSmithKline, working in the GSK Performance Lab. Um, This is a fascinating episode for anybody who is interested in neuroscience. We go really geeky. Um, We go quite deep into the science um, around the brain. Particular areas of interest for me in this conversation were where we discussed the brains of fighter pilots um, and one of the research papers that ed ran and also those of of uh, combat sport experts so looking at black belt karate experts um there were some fascinating findings and one of the big things that came out of this chat for me was um ed's views on the one thing we should be doing to protect our brain and cognitive function and also his view on the one thing we shouldn't be doing to protect our brain and cognitive function and this is coming from somebody who takes a very scientific uh, neutral approach to to this rather than much of what we read which tends to be much more emotionally based so um, this is really interesting chat it's quite a long one it's relatively calmly paced so uh sit back chill um get a cup of tea and uh enjoy if you've got any questions for us or for me afterwards please send us a tweet at vivid drinks cheers So we're sat in pretty cool sound studio in uh, Imperial College University in London. I'm sat here with Dr. Ed Roberts. Hi, Ed. Hi. How Hi. are you doing? Not so bad. Thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. Thanks for having me at Imperial. Um, so you've been here for four years now, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to imperial but also I got involved with neuroscience okay um so i did uh i did an msc at imperial um quite a few years ago now and that led into uh, a phd in cognitive neuroscience um and then following that i did a, a postdoc for a few years at cambridge and then I, I came back here to do another postdoc in a different topic and i've sort of zigzag between areas there's a thread that links them all but um uh 
yeah, I've I've done some nice topics in quite quite different areas, but um, yeah, I think maybe the connection between that is I'm I'm just sort of working on things I'm really interested in and nice projects, and then when they wrap up, I kind of look for the next good project. That's a nice position to be in. You can work on <laughs> things that you really want to work on. Um, so I mean, I I know that you've done a lot of work. Um, looking at the cognition of experts mm-hmm. um there are two papers that are of particular interest to me one that looks at um martial artists or black belt karate um experts and also fighter pilots mm. so can we chat a little bit about them yeah um and and, and dive into those so the the karate paper could you talk a, a little bit about that okay so, well, these studies are linked because what we wanted to look at was whether learning affects brain structure. And this was a few years ago, but at that point, um, it was sort of it was generally accepted that during development, um, uh, when people are growing up from children to teenage years and things like that, you get changes in brain structure. But after after you kind of come of age, people only thought you well, really, sort of deteriorated, or there, there weren't many different changes then. It was a sort of fixed system. And there were a few papers that started coming out suggesting that this wasn't necessarily the case, or that you might be able to link specific skills to structural differences in in the brain. And and that was quite radical, because and people understood you, your brain might be... the activity might be different, but essentially everyone's brain was the same. And... So we were interested in testing this with two groups of experts and we had access to RAF tornado pilots and and a group of um, karate experts as well, black belts. And they they were nice because they they illustrate different specific skills. So with RAF pilots you can have more it's a more cognitive, it's not a a, a physical role in the same way that a karate experts is. So it's one's kind of whole body and one's um, quite precision um, and for, for my from my perspective one of the good things about doing studies in healthy people and looking at expertise related to healthy people is that you don't have the problems you have if you're studying patients so if you're having people with, who's had a stroke or had some kind of a brain injury they've already got a lot of problems and they might be worse at some specific uh, aspect of cognition but they might have lots of other problems as well mm. and all you're really looking at is how you can um, rehabilitate them back to a, a normal level whereas with expertise you're it, it's sort of more optimistic you're saying look these people can do this how how can you generalize that mm. um, and improve uh, kind of healthy functioning and it's um, I think that that aspect of it is is really interesting. Okay, so if we if we take the if we start with the fighter pilot yeah. um, study because I think that was the earlier study, is that right? Yeah, yeah. What what exactly was the paper looking at, um, okay. and what elements of their cognition were you looking at, and and, and yeah. what what were the findings of the study? So we we looked at a couple of things. We looked at something called 
um, the, the general area is called cognitive control, and it's you could break that down to sort of decision making, really. But it's it's sort of perceptual decision making. So we we choose chose two tasks. One was called the stop signal, or it's really a, it's called a change of change of plan task. But essentially, in that task, you you respond to the direction of arrow, It'll be pointing left or right, and you just have to press right if it points right, left if it points left. And that'll be what you see most of the time, but then occasionally you might see an arrow that points in the opposite direction. So you'll see a green arrow pointing right, and then you'll see a red arrow pointing leftwards, but it'll appear slightly afterwards. So you'll start trying to react to the first one, and then you'll see the red one, and the idea is that you change your plan. And, and presumably, and uh, fighter pilots are the ideal test, yeah. test bed for this. So kind this, of this, yeah. Because of the no, this is what we thought. So um, that that was the kind of first task we had, and and the idea is you you increase that delay, and make it more difficult. Um, and we, th- that's a specific task, and there are different minute variations on that. Um, but what was kind of interesting for us was that they were. On that task, we we didn't actually find any difference with the controls. We thought we would, but, but we didn't. So they they seem to be sort of consistent with controls in that aspect, which is nice because it means they're not brilliant at everything. If you find people are just just generally better at everything, then that's that's not very specific. So, um, but the good thing was we used a different task as well, a separate one called the Ericsson flanker task, and essentially that is just a measure of uh, how easily you can inhibit distractions, and we looked at two things there. We looked at how quickly they were able to respond when there were distractors in the field, and how accurate accurate they were. And again, it, it was sort of counterintuitive because what we found was that the RF pilots were slightly I don't want to say more distractible, but they were slightly more susceptible to these distractors, so they slowed down a little bit. But that turned out to be a trade-off, because they hardly made any mistakes. So, whereas our controls would make 5 or 10% mistakes, the RF pilots were getting almost to, almost 100%, or they're making kind of 1% error or something like that. So this second test, you just explained a bit mm, more detail how sure. you were testing that. So what it looks like, it's, it's a sort of classic experiment, um, and you have an arrow in the middle of the screen. All these things involve arrows. Arrow in the middle of the screen, and above and below it, you'll have arrows pointing in the same direction or in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And all your job is is to respond to the arrow in the middle of the screen. So if it points right, press right. If it points left, press left. But because there are arrows pointing in the same direction or the opposite direction, they distract you. Even though you're told to ignore them, they're processed. And so if they point in the opposite direction, you're slowed down. And that's a really robust effect, like it's it's rock solid. It's, we have a lot of problems in psychology at the moment about reproducing results, but that's one of the ones that always comes out, <laughs> like you can rely on it. So... Um, so it, you just look at the difference between those two conditions when all the arrows go in the same direction or, the, or there's like a conflict between the directions. And the RAF pilots essentially had a slightly bigger difference between those two, and which again was slightly counterintuitive, but we explained that 
when we when we looked at the the accuracy of their responses so they might have been slightly slower than the controls but they were super accurate and so i think what was happening there was that they were optimizing their performance and if you think of it in terms of their job making errors is not <laughs> not great so when you're flying these are guys who are uh they were all men as well we tried to we would have recruited more women as well but we um there are very few female pilots and that i think that's probably for various reasons but mainly because there's very few pilots in the first place um and these are the guys who they're flying tornadoes who are bombers so you imagine kind of top gun and they're flying, <laughs> doing dog fights and things that's that's hard but what you you only need to worry about the other plane you don't need to worry about the floor um whereas if you're a bombing pilot, pilot you need to worry about other planes and you need to worry about things shooting at you from from the floor and mainly you need to worry about hitting the floor because these people could fly at some of them were cleared to fly in certain areas at I can't remember, it was like 400 miles an hour but at something like 200 feet above the ground wow and if you make the wrong decision after you're going over a hill at that speed you just instantly hit the hill so high pressure high stakes very very high pressure and that's that was only specific areas they were allowed to fly that low mm. but they were able to do it and the level of control you need for that is incredibly high because yeah the the hazard is uh what instant and um instant destruction really so so in terms of of human performance and individuals and their brain mm. cognitive abilities these are almost the elite of the elite yeah and they i think uh, when i took so take a broad look at it they also are quite a specific group because um we were only testing the people who were flying the planes there's a navigator that sits behind them and we didn't even we didn't test them because we only wanted the guy at the front doing that um and the kind of application rate is something like it's 10,000 applicants to one person who gets in the plane so they they were actually brilliant to test because you could tell them what to do and they would just do exactly what you said and they were all um very similar sort of personality types mm. like quite quite capable very straightforward totally calm and i think that comes from probably just a massive selection bias because that you don't want to get someone who is sort of a maverick candidate and try and train them you just select someone who was fits your profile already mm. so um these these are like a super selected bunch of people who are very good at this so they they're sort of like a different type of expert group because they're probably we didn't do any genetics on it cuz samples are too small but genetically they're probably quite specific in a way or their mix of skills is very specific mm. i was going to say so it does raise the question in terms of um any results that come through for them that show that they are um higher performers than mm. your average control group mm. how 
do you separate what uh, is down to training yeah. and repetition of, of practicing of the task versus what, as you say is probably that recruitment bias that you, you're already looking at and dealing with yeah. um, a very very high performing group of individuals yeah um, yeah and that's a difficult question because this is sort of a cross-sectional study so it was just taking at people at various stages in their RF careers and then match them with sort of healthy um, I think they were IQ matched controls but to do a study where you've got more more detail and depth out of that you'd have to pull things out so what would be good would be looking at if you wanted to see does RAF training change your brain structure you have to take people at the point of recruitment and some other people um, and then measure them kind of longitudinally like five years later and see how their brains have changed in, mm-hmm. in response to that um, I think probably the people who are kind of filtered out would look different to a lot of the initial candidates or less variable or something like that mm-hmm. but it yeah it's it's a more complicated study um so so of of the individuals that you looked at if we delve into mm-hmm. their brains mm-hmm. is that something that you you looked at as well yeah, the yeah. structure of their brains so what so what what were some of the so, findings there um the findings we, we looked in areas that have been uh, shown to light up in response to these tasks, so areas that are meant in brain areas that are meant to be involved in processing the, these two types of tasks, these cognitive control tasks. So we kind of selected those regions out, and we used a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, which is uh, an MRI technique, and, it, and it's just a way of measuring uh, brain structure, and specifically, it's the white matter in the brain. So those are there's like the wires that connect the the grey matter areas that do things, the white matter connects those areas and you can use this technique called uh, DTI to look at how water molecules move in the brain so passively and essentially you're looking at kind of brownie motion so if you have like imagine some water in a bucket, the water molecules in the middle of the bucket can just move around in a bucket of water but if you have them in a hose pipe, they can move around randomly, but there will be like an average direction where they'll move further. So they move further along the pipe because they could randomly move further along the pipe than they could ever move in kind of a perpendicular to so hit the sides. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a sort of physical um, phenomenon, but you can use that and apply it to brain structure. So you look at how the water molecules are moving, and then you can say, oh, these are all moving in the same direction. That's probably one bundle of white matter fibres. And if they're moving a bit more randomly or if there's no structure to it, that's more like grey matter because there's no intrinsic kind of organisation of that. Can you, can you just describe for um, the layman? Yeah. Um, what, what, because we, you know, grey matter is a term that we hear a lot and more and more actually yeah. as people are looking more and more at brain health mm-hmm. um, what exactly brain matter okay. is and what it does for us so um, the sort of uh, brain structure 101 is there's sort of three things in the brain there's mm-hmm. there's grey matter there's white matter and there's fluid and the 
fluid does various things, but your brain sits in a bag of fluid. Um, and white matter are the, the wires connecting things. So they're, they're not really active, but they, well, they transmit signals in that way. And, and grey matter is really, when you see a picture of the brain, that's what you're seeing on the outside. And if you cut it in half, you can see that the grey matter is sort of folded along the ex exterior, and then the white matter will fan out from the middle and connect these areas. And there are connections, long-range connections and short-range connections. Um, and the grey matter is when you see images in the press of like a, a area lighting up, lighting up in the brain like a blob. Um, that's always grey matter that's lighting up. And so it's the grey matter that has all the neurons that um, essentially do all the processing in your brain. So that really is the, an important part. Having said that, if you disconnect those areas by damaging the white matter, they can't talk to the other areas. Mm -hmm. So they have to be connected. Um, so that's what does, does all the processing. And then there are different areas, um, kind of larger regions within the brain that kind of they group together tasks. Like you have like a visual cortex at the back of your head and you have prefrontal cortex at the front, which does more um, organising organizing behaviour, organising uh, your thoughts in a way and working memory and things like that. So that's that's a sort of overview but yeah grey matter kind of does the processing and white matter connects things exactly. to each other um, so we were interested in the white matter that connected areas that were involved in these tasks in these RAF pilots um, and what we found was there were just slight differences not, not huge but um, slight differences in the RAF uh, pilot group and when we looked at that across the groups, there was a, a correlation between their performance on on one of these tasks where we where we'd seen the differences and and these white matter differences. But um, they were quite subtle. But the one of the problem one of the problems with doing brain studies and problems with doing RF pilot studies is that you're getting access to these people is really hard. Mm. There actually are physically are not that many pilots anyway, um, and a lot of these guys were kind of based in Lossiemouth in Aberdeen, so we had to get them down from there to London. They get scanned, get tested, and things. So um, logistically and <laughs> financially, it's hard work to do. So I always inside you want to do you want more data, but um, at the at the time that's what we, what we could do, and I th I think it, it's. Um, it was interesting what we got out of it, certainly in terms of the behaviour as well, and looking at those kind of um, contrasts with mm. normal controls. So was it that study that kind of took you, led you on to doing the karate study as well? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. We sort of, we were a little bit done in parallel with that. The RF pilot one we got done first, I think, and then the karate experts one was different, and it, it in many ways, um, and it contrasts with the RAF pilots because these people are self-selected. So whereas the RAF pilots, everyone applies and then they get filtered down. In karate, if you want to do karate, mm. you just start doing. You turn up and start doing karate. So, completely different group and completely different motivation. Um, in a way, so that's more interesting. I think 
in terms of the genetic thing, if there is a genetic link, I'd see. I imagine you see that more in the RF pilots, probably because you're selecting for something specific. Um, in the karate experts, probably less so, although it might be sort of a certain type of person who wants to do karate or, or is has that commitment to do sure. it enough. Sure, but I suppose it, the, the difference is, I suppose, with with RAF pilots, you. I assume, actually, I don't know this for a fact, but you have to have been to university and you probably need to have got certain grades. And mm. um, I don't... I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that you do, but I think there's... The, the, no, I don't know that for a fact either, but I think it wasn't... I think, like, a university education would... I'm not sure that would be, <laughs> be any use to be flying a plane. Um... I think these guys all, all were all very uh, competent, um, but I don't know. I think some, I think some went in sort of as trainees. I think I don't know whether you right. need a, a, a university education. I, I guess sometimes you have that for like if you, if you're going as an officer or something in the army. But um, no, I don't. I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether that's different. But um, yeah, we tried to sort of IQ match them, but that, again, that's not very university specific either. Mm. Okay, so with the karate study, then mm. looking at the experts, um, how do you define expert? Well, you can, again, it's, it's down to your own definition. I mean, we we wanted people who had at least a black belt, and I think on average they had they had quite a few years training. I can't remember if it was seven years or ten years on average, but it was. They'd been doing it for long enough, so it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't people who were doing it for two or three years. And we did test some people who were technically black belts, but then I think they hadn't had a, a enough training, or, or or we weren't totally convinced um, because it is also self-report as well. So yeah. people say, "Oh, I'm a black belt," and <laughs> you might be, but um, there are degrees within that. So some were like third dan black belts, and. Mm. I think the best guys coming through are ones who'd been doing it since they were children. Yeah, I had a guy who, it, part of the experiment was it was a punching task, but punching from a short distance, and he was punching this board, and we'd set this thing up in the lab, and <laughs> the other professor who was helping, he kind of looked at me after this guy was punching, and the, the pens on his desk were sort of slightly rattling when the guy was punching the equipment. He was just kind of saying, well. You know, we need we need to damp this because he's going to destroy the accelerometers. And this guy was just sort of laughing, absolutely cracking this board um, from such a short range. And um, well, I, I read the paper actually, and and it did make me laugh when at one point he actually noted to say that uh, during the pilot, the task had to be constrained to protect the equipment from <laughs> from the uh, from the black belts. Yeah, yeah. No, we we started off with because we wanted to do really like long range. More like a sort of Shaolin punch, really. Like um, we're calling them salvos, but double punch. So punching with one hand, punching the other, and having almost straight arm. And we did test that a bit, but it it wouldn't. The equipment just wouldn't have taken that, or we would have had to build something particularly special because it was. I suppose um, it'd be hard to measure against a control group as well, who have the, no idea how to. Punch. That was the other thing because I, I'd done a bit of kung fu a long time ago, but. Not in karate, you get a lot of punching training, so you're used to it. And actually, if you if you punch a board like that repeatedly, you start bruising your knuckles, and it. And so it's not ethical to get controls in to do mm. punches where it's it's, te- it's it's technically quite difficult. They'd have to learn how to do it properly, and then 
and then we'd have to protect them and it and it wasn't you don't, it wasn't, you don't want to end up with a with a few controls with broken wrists yeah no exactly you know, bruised knuckles and broken wrists exactly so and that mainly and then combined with the fact the equipment wasn't going to hold up to it we we kind of went more for almost like a one inch punch sort mm. of situation and that was even still like the karate experts were really it's really constrained what we were doing but if you've not trained in that you can't you just can't replicate that force mm. So, so w- what was the study setting out to discover, and, and and how was it set up? So we we were looking for on a kind of grander level. I was interested in what dynamics, um, kind of body dynamics, um, predicted a good punch, and it, and it was constrained, so it's not it's not a perfect um, example. But we we just wanted something which we could pull out and say these karate experts were moving in a particular way which we could relate to differences in brain structure if there were any. So what we set up was uh, it was a, they were standing and they just did a, a short range punch from about a couple of inches, it was five centimetres, and and then got the controls to do the same thing. And we while they were doing that we had infrared lights on their joints so we were doing like 3D motion capture of them at the same time. And... And so they'd come in and do these punches. They they did the punch from I think from touching and then the punch from a, a short range. And I think we got them to do a just trying to remember now, I think we did a kind of slightly strange finger moving task that was meant to be a timing related task. But I don't think to measure different aspects of motor control really. But the, the central one was the, the short range punching. And then separately we took them to an MRI machine and, and acquired all the structural imaging data. Of their brains, you know, crucially, we didn't. They weren't punching whilst in the scanner, although that would have been great, <laughs> but completely like impossible to do. Um, so, yeah. So that, then the idea was then to take these two groups. You had these structural MRI data and compare them, and then look for a group difference. And then, if you had that difference, was that difference in the karate experts related to something they were doing in the lab in terms of their punching? So could we relate that? And we had a similar approach where we picked brain regions we thought were related to motor control. Um, and sorry, just again, yeah, m- sure. motor control okay. uh, as a basic definition. You could argue it covers pretty much everything. I mean, your brain is not, it must be, the vast majority of what it's doing is motor control. Um, and I don't think that's too controversial. I mean, even even cognitive processes have an action related to it. So even if you're thinking about something, then it still has a, a possibility of some some kind of action related to or not doing something. So sort of philosophically, you can say virtually everything is motor control. But we were looking at specific aspects related to timing and um, control of kind of upper body, so the arm and and uh, torso and shoulder and in the brain there's a an area in the motor cortex called the motor strip and it's essentially it's kind of a, a strip of uh, brain matter coming from like the middle of your head down towards the edges towards your ears and the if you follow if you kind of test those different locations as you go down kind of ragedly like on on the, on the clock um, different areas con- correspond to different parts of your body so I can't remember. I think I think your hand area was sort of quite central at the top, and then it might be like more your face, and then and then um, the body has like a small representation because you 
you don't have that much explicit control over your torso and it doesn't and there aren't as many kind of moving parts. So your hands have a big mm. representation in your head because you move your hands a lot and there's a lot of feedback. So you need to you have a lot of your brain devoted to that, whereas your trunk just doesn't do that much. Yeah. So it doesn't need a lot of uh, processing time. So we looked at areas like that related to um, the kind of arm area, and we looked in this area called the cerebellum. So this, when you when you look at anatomy of the brain, you have um, sort of two parts. You have the main kind of part that's um, it's sort of kind of uh, squiggly, I guess. And then underneath it, you have a bit that looks sort of stripy, and that's called the cerebellum, and that's sort of it means like little brain, but it's it's slightly it's connected to the rest of the brain, but it it does a different thing. Um, so I'm just trying to explain what the cerebellum does. It's difficult, but it's not really clear what the cerebellum does. But if you have um, lesions of it or damage to that you can have a lot of problems with motor control so fluid movements get um, disrupted and it, and it's also very related to motor learning so if you in animal experiments if it's removed or damaged then you might not be able to learn things as quickly or you might be able, not be able to encode them as quickly or, or lay them down as long term memory so the cerebellum is really important for these kind of smooth movements and we thought that if you um, had learned something like mo uh, like a karate expert skill, then so the cerebellum or the connections to it are probably really important. Mm. So that's where we were kind of zooming in on. Okay. So, so the, what were the results of the the your findings? So, we looked um, in terms of the brain structure. We looked at connections to the cerebellum, and one of these connections. Uh, we found, again, slightly surprisingly, and this was very counterintuitive, and not always your reviewers for your papers agree with you, but very, very rarely. <laughs> um, but there was an idea that expertise was always related to increases in connectivity. So if you were better at p playing the piano, the areas involved in that would have better white matter connections. And that and that might well be true. Um, what was is often is really underreported, and I th there could be reasons for that. Is that if you improve one thing, um, you in your brain you you've got a limited amount of energy. So if you improve one thing, another thing is probably going to reduce, or you're not going to have enough time to train that. So if you get better at tennis because you spend loads of time doing it, you can't get better at darts because you're mm. not playing it. So it's it's seesaw effects. Um, and then also secondary to that is that the different areas that are involved in a task, improving a connection to that area, even though it's involved in a task, might not necessarily make you better at that task. It might make you worse. So if you were let's say, a bit distractible, and then you had a better connection to your visual cortex, for argument's sake, you might actually get more distractible. And that might not... You might see the images more clearly, but then they might be even more distracting, let's say. Um, so you, you can easily imagine a situation where um, a better connection might not be an advantage. 
it just all depends on how that network works and it, and it's going to be really complicated so it, it's a bit arbitrary saying better connections are always better mm. um and i'm saying all this because we found <laughs> in our expert group we found uh, a reduced connection to this area um wow to an area that's um it's quite sort of specific um but it's part of part of the cerebellum and and it connects to another more kind of deep older version of a brain area that was um was called the rubrospinal uh, system and and that system is related to arm movements and where so in development uh, this is this is a bit of an aside but it's it's sort of interesting where when you're developing as a child this is a system where you'd be using your arm movements um and it's quite crude and it, it won't give you much control of your hands and then as you develop you start using the main motor cortex so it's like a backup arm system um and what we found was a sort of reduction in the connection to that in the karate experts and I thought that was that's really interesting because it, it sort of might suggest and this is a bit speculative that the karate experts are now they need their arms and they, they use them and they've trained these systems a lot and so what they've done is uh, started to cut out interference from like an old system mm. so rather than having two they've gone, we're just going to have one and it's going to work well and so to improve the system, you actually start cutting out potentially noise from an old from an old kind of pathway that you don't need or use anymore. So So it's it's effectively becoming more efficient. Yeah, yeah, more efficient. Yeah, I th- I think that's exactly right. So reducing the connection to that pathway, maybe just it says we don't need that anymore, become more efficient, it's all focused on this one. It's less noisy. There's no less ambiguity, and so maybe you get a better functioning system like this. So is that, is that the brain kind of, I suppose, reserving its resources so that it knows how to do this now? I could also take on something else and something different if I wanted to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, how how that happens. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's difficult to sort of say. I mean, a lot of it is just using one system. A lot reinforces it. Mm. It's this concept of. It's in terms of uh, neurons firing. It's like fire together, wire together. So it's called Hebbian principle, and it's just that if you use that pathway a lot, it improves. Yeah. And if you don't use it, it degrades or it, or goes back to baseline. So how how did that sit with um, what you hypothesized? before the experiment well it's just the opposite <laughs> so um i wouldn't have predicted like a, a reduction there i was quite surprised um and it's fascinating finding yeah and i mean are yeah, you, are you, were you the first people to have highlighted that and has there, have there been others since there's there was i think there's a couple of studies who reported something similar but they didn't they didn't get the it, it, into a decent journal or not into decent journals. Let's say high impact journals. Mm. It was decent studies, but um, there was just a bias, and there is a bias in 
in scientific literature for publishing a positive result and there's almost a bias I think in elite sports so these people are definitely better at this and there's absolutely no downside and it, it doesn't really make sense like you can be the way the brain works is it's got to be energy efficient so if you're using one system a lot you're not using the others by definition so you might see these differences and and equally um reducing a connection to some some system that you don't really need anymore is is another efficient way of doing things it's yeah. almost more efficient than building a new connection or strengthening something is to just sort of cut one that's kind of that's sort of easier in a way um so i quite like the 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 kind of intelligence of that mm. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I suppose it, it, if you if you go back to a basic level where when you're learning a new task, hmm. you really feel the cognitive load of that. You haven't yeah. worked very hard. It kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know whether it was a recent study that was done or, or, or experiment that was done or whether it was um, an old one, but David Eagleman did something where he was comparing... I don't know if you've seen there's this kid I think he's probably like 10 years old who has these a load of red cups on a table mm. and he has to pick up the red cups and stack them all together right. and he's oh yeah he's done it in a world record time or something I think that, yeah, yeah. and then they looked at his brain versus some guy who comes along and says right how how hard can this be mm. and when they when they looked at the images of both of their brains the guy who had never done this before, his brain was firing on all cylinders mm. versus the kid who, you know, he was an expert at this yeah. one particular task and it almost looked as though nothing was happening in his brain. Yeah. Is it a similar... Yeah, no, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's that's expertise when you get to the level, what, what you want to do is automate these things mm. so that it's not a cognitive, like a conscious process anymore. It's just... Um, uh, automatic um, just like learning to drive you know in the first year you're still working pretty hard to yeah. to, to keep everything together to right? keep it all together yeah. to, to stay on top of it but after six months or a year you know you you drive from A to B and you don't even realise you've driven because yeah, you're exactly. miles away no exactly exactly um, and the same with picking up new sports I, I started playing baseball a couple of years ago for about a year and that was incredibly hard. Like just learning a sport from scratch, really hard. Like every aspect of it is new. Mm. And I think that's sort of one of the interesting things is that children have this all the time. Like that's that's their life. Is everything is new. Do this. I've never done it. And then so they have to just go over and keep doing this. And whereas as adults, I think you hit a stage where you often rarely encounter completely brand new situations. And if you do you there's definite reluctance to engage with it to an extent where you have to fail a bit and actually work really hard you forget how hard it is to learn things I think mm. um, or whereas and you go no I'm good at this I'm going to stay within my my boundaries and I'll continue sort of pushing forward in this area and, and I think um, and that's very seductive because it, it is easier um, so but based on what you know then off the back of these studies mm. it, obviously staying with what you know is the, the comfortable thing to do but are there clear benefits for the brain in 
in always challenging yourself? Um, I think, yeah, some some people as a professor at UCL I know, um, called Vince Walsh would would definitely espouse this. I think there is a little bit of a kind of use it or lose it um, mantra. Um, I think some of the brain benefits are to do with new experiences so and dealing with unpredictability so when something is automatic your brain's not really working and so there's there's no change going on or or it's it's not being challenged and there is some evidence that um in people who have dementia or an idea that how, how how quickly dementia comes on or or how you might reduce that is related to sort of new experiences and a specific neurotransmitter but it's to do with like having a social circle mm-hmm. and if and if you have social contact you don't know what other people are going to say so you always have to be slightly on your toes in the same way that kind of like learning new skills it's hard you have to engage with it so you have to sort of actually concentrate and yeah, I mean, I from from that work, I don't know how far it's gone, but I know people are, are trying studying that drug in isolation. But um, I think studying something and improving at it, it gives you like a sport. You have a social aspect, you have a physical aspect. That's why people kind of side dancing and things like that because you have to concentrate as well. It's not just um, an automatic kind of thing. Well, this is this is really intriguing because. Obviously, with an aging population, and, mm. and and as we learn more and more about the brain and some of the um, what's going on in the brain with dementia and Alzheimer's, mm. uh, I think most of us know that we need to keep our brain active in certain ways. But mm. what I'm kind of getting from this mm. is that it's no good doing something. Yes, you're keeping it active by um, playing. Sudoku, mm. but actually, that Sudoku puzzle is only going to change a certain amount. And once your brain has got used to that level of variation, mm. you may actually no longer um, get any additional benefit from it by comparison to doing something like. Um, I don't know, dancing's quite a good one because it's yeah. always there's always going to be new movement and 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 unpredictable movement. Yeah, is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a there's a good article by I think it was Malcolm Gladwell about this um, not a long time ago. But so it, like, say you play tennis every Sunday, right? And you've been playing every Sunday for ten, fifteen years, but you're still not qualifying for Wimbledon because you just knock around with your mates on a Sunday. Mm. Um, and that can be fun and everything, but if you had a coach, you need someone to sort of push you, because there's a real um, tendency to just sort of slip back into the whatever's easiest. Your brain wants you to do things that are easy. It doesn't want you to be stretched particularly, so it will fight that. And um, is, is, is that is that a, you know, a biological thing yeah. from... Thousands of years ago, when yeah. basically it's just it's, it's just about reserving yeah, because preserving if, energy. 
Exactly, yeah, because if you're alive now and there's nothing wrong with you, why go and do something mm. that's more strenuous because you're sort of conserving energy? So um, there's always that that bias. Um, but that article, Malcolm Gladwell's article, was about um, a surgeon and he he looked at his error rate and in his surgeries or his complications and he got a guy in to sort of mentor him that was older and they, and they kind of went through things and kind of reduce that. And he said it was sort of strange that if you were a sportsman, you'd have a coach throughout your whole career. And if you were, if you were a musician, you'd be taught, and you'd just be sort of left. So, like, if you're a professional musician, you could still benefit from having a mentor or something like that to push you, or rather than just assuming you've kind of learned everything. Yeah. So there's, there's I think, I guess the general thing is... There's no reason that you would stop learning. You don't have to stop learning, but a lot of things are set up so they say, "Okay, you you can ride the bike now. Fine, you're on your own." Whereas, you know, Dave Brailsford he runs the um, is, it, is it Team Sky? I can't the, remember. The, oh, the GB Olympic, but the GB Olympic team, team yeah. as well. Yeah, he's not going to go. Well, we've got a bike now. Yeah, just get get out there and do it. Like, it's all about tweaking every tiny thing and coaching and going over stuff and that's how you get people to improve by by pushing them and if they're engaged yeah and and if you're progressing and it's the right environment that makes it more fun because you want to be better at what you do generally um, because it is enjoyable improving um and learning has that kind of dopamine related effect so there's there's a biological basis for that as well so yeah, Sorry, I mean, just, could you just explain the, the dopamine? So, do, so dopamine's um, it's a neurotransmitter and it's related to reward, but it's also related to um, learning and plasticity. So in, in studies, if you, uh, if you make a prediction and you get something right, then you learn about the environment, then you learn something, and that learning is reinforced through dopamine, and the dopamine also makes you feel uh, good. So it incentivizes, it sort of helps crystallize learning physically in the brain and also incentivize more learning. So it is. That's why learning is fun. People do like learning, mm. as a, you know, as a species. Because if we didn't, we <laughs> wouldn't last very long. Um, so it has that a biological basis. So it makes it more fun. And I think if it's fun, then you learn more and you get better, and you're more active and you're more engaged, and you're at the edge of your ability. So you're stimulated. Whereas the the opposite of that, sadly, is sort of watching telly and <laughs> although in, but everything in moderation but um, the more hours you sit sort of immobile the, the the kind of higher prediction of your dementia and poor health and various other things sitting sitting for like three or four hours motionless in the evening is like one of the, like the worst things really it's, it's really bad for you really? um, and that's it comes out a lot like, to, like you can watch it for a bit, but then you want to. Even if you get up and move around and break that up a little bit in between, but I think it's just like sitting for three hours watching mm. um, something really boring is not only not stimulating, 
often in in this kind of learning way, but it's also I, it it's just generally a bad health thing, and I, I do it, but it's not good for me. Um, mm. I try to not do it. But. That brings me on in a weird way to um, meditation. Mm. Now I don't know if you've you've studied the impacts of meditation on the brain at all, but from what I've seen, there's more and more research that's really now backing up the emotional, um, but also the neuro benefits mm. of meditation. Mm. And to an outsider who, or, or to somebody who hasn't meditated before, hasn't been guided through it, they might look and say, well, hold on, what's the difference between sitting in silence with your legs crossed to watching the TV? And if yeah. anything, watching the TV um, is possibly more stimulating. Yeah. Um, yeah, agree. <laughs> uh, different di- differences, but um, I think one of the points of meditation is to sort of reduce anxiety and um, improve your level of calm. And now that might be important because if you're anxious or stressed, um, you have more of a hormone called cortisol, and that is okay in the short term. It, it allows you to do things and react quickly to the stress hormone, so you, um, if you're faced with a challenge, you can deal with it. If that continues over a long time, it becomes really detrimental, and it's, it's, it is quite a toxic hormone, so it sort of starts attacking systems, and you can't kind of remember uh, things from long-term memory if you're stressed as easily you become a very immediate but um, it can affect your immune system and things like that so stress is I mean that's not new stress is bad for you Um, but one of the ways you can sort of interact with that system is through kind of breathing control methods and breathing is something you can pay attention to and control uh, cognitively and then that starts feeding back into the rest of the system because it's all sort of linked, it's all looped. But if you can intervene at some stage in that, then you can uh, start shifting everything. So if you can reduce that level of stress or get it back down to a normal level, that's what you want to do. Okay, so you mentioned the endocrine endocrine yeah. system earlier. And I know you've done a little bit of work looking at the connection of that system to decision-making mm. and particularly financial decision-making, risk-taking in bankers. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great if you could just describe, well, firstly explain what the endocrine system is and what it does and, and then chat to us a little bit more about that study. Okay, so the, the endocrine system's really involved in hormonal regulation right and that and that can relate to there are lots of hormones but the ones we were specifically interested in were cortisol which is a stress hormone and uh, testosterone so like a male sex hormone and this kind of came out of some work from Cambridge where uh, they were looking at saliva and traders in the city and found that there's a relationship between their profits, their profits and losses, um, 
and the cortisol levels in the morning. So they measure the saliva in the morning and over a couple of weeks and look at how that was related to uh, their performance. Um, and that's uh, that got loads of media coverage because it, it's sort of quite a radical idea, really. Um, uh, certainly in economics, because in economics uh, you, you, you've got a model of someone that's essentially a, a consistent person who makes these decisions, and the fact that they might be varying over the day to day um, is <laughs> challenges that assumption. And on a more practical level, if your bankers are varying day to day based on how they're feeling or how stressed they are, they're making more or less money. That's something else you want to address because it's not. This is not a small change. Some of these people were were making kind of like million, ten hundred million pound decisions and things. So um, it has kind of quite big resonance. Uh, and I guess also thirdly, there's an idea that in prior to a financial crash, that people are over exuberant or this irrational exuberance um, high on let's say in inverted commas high on testosterone not really that but behaving in a way that has decoupled them from what they would have been doing normally so in, so a hormonally induced <laughs> I can say psychosis but um, hormones are affecting something prior to a financial crisis people are making investments that are um, they wouldn't have done normally and over optimistic and and that's feeding the bubble, and then at some point, this crashes, and so the idea was that maybe these cycles in financial markets are could be in part hormonally driven, um, and it, and it's also unusual because the situation because you've again there's another situation you've just got ninety nine percent men doing the actual trades and mm. stuff. There are there are women in different roles, but in these specific positions, it's nearly always men. Um, that, that's a sort of a separate issue. But so what we were interested in doing was testing whether these hormones actually affected um, performance, because these were correlations from and it's fetal data, but it, it's still only a correlation. So you want to test people against placebo and a, and a properly structured design, so you can decide whether that's real or not. And so we we designed a kind of financial simulator tra- task. We had a couple of stocks and they went through different periods of um, volatility so they'd be a bit more unpredictable, a bit a bit smooth um, and they'd drift upwards or downwards and we just used that as a model and got people to invest in it. And so we did a couple of studies where we gave, in one study we were testing cortisol and measuring that and then the other study we were testing testosterone and it was it was all men because um, because traders are all men, firstly, so it's more valid. Um, and then doing hormone studies is uh, it's more complex if you're female participants for just like various reasons. But um, but but it, it reflects the environment essentially. And and so what we found was with the cortisol, it was quite nice that they it was quite an acute dose, so it was a short term kind of high high dose and then went down again and so basically when on that they just took more risks across the board and I've just sort of generalised increase of risk taken and it didn't seem to matter whether the prices were going up or they gone down um, they just ramped up their risk taking so they went for just riskier stocks 
Um, and that's that's probably more in line with what we predicted and what we thought anyway, and mm. with the literature, which which is good way because you don't want too many counterintuitive results all the time. But um, ideally, some of it fits. Renegade. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, renegade. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what you're doing? Um, <laughs> and then in the testosterone one, it was slightly different. So we again they were taking more risks, so they were investing in more of these stocks, but that was related to beliefs about how the price would change in the future so as part of the experiment we've asked them to how much do you want to invest in this stock type that in and then where do you think the price will go so do you think it will go further up or further down and if you're investing if you're buying you expect it to go up and if you're selling you expecting it to go down and essentially the the testosterone effect was related to this price expectation so they were investing in these risky stocks because on average or compared to the placebo they thought they were going to go up more so they're essentially more optimistic about the future so it's quite a different effect whereas cortisol was just we're taking more risks and that's more related to evolution like if you're stressed you're just like it's a survival thing we need to take more risks to survive so the, the tiger appears in the cave and then you can't just ignore it you actually have to fight it you haven't got a choice yeah. um but with the testosterone, it was more a bias of perception in a way. Because on the testosterone, you just thought the prices were going to go higher on average. And that was just your estimate of the future. And so within that, it makes sense to invest more money because you just think it's going to go up more. But you've got the same amount of information. And you're not... Uh, you not get any other clues so given the same information if you're on testosterone you're just more optimistic and there is a, there is some connection with this thing called like, the optimism bias about people are more optimistic about the future even, give, even given the past is bad they just think oh, in the future will be better and that, that's a good thing because if you think the past is bad it's going to get worse like that's not a very good way to live, but mm. and there's some evidence that people with depression, their optimism bias is, um, they're almost exactly right about predicting the future in a, in a way, based on, on sort of, in some of these lab tests, and so that's sort of a bit, and that's almost like a hallmark of depression, whereas if you're slightly more optimistic, then things are going to get better, so you, that carries you along, um, and so. Is it, it might be that testosterone mediates in some way this this optimism bias mm. and so you can be more confident and uh, and there's links in the literature to do with testosterone to do with winning competitions and sports people having uh, being more, more confident and, and and streaks of winning leading to people more and more and more, and more confident uh, related to sort of the testosterone increase so that that was how those two experiments kind of connected do you think in the future given the fallout of the financial crisis mm. um, and you know, how much intrinsically and systematically has actually changed within the banks mm. who knows but do you think there might be a case in the future for 
banks is the obvious example, but there's many others in trading firms, mm. um, to say actually as part of our recruitment processes, there will be some kind of um, you know, risk tolerance or aversion or mm. uh, testing, whether it's through saliva or, 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 or some of these other tests, to say, you know, look, actually, this is our... Um, our risk department that we're hiring for we don't want these guys jacked up mm. on testosterone or you know depending on what they're kind of trying to set out to do it's yeah. just an extension of their their assessment centers for recruitment essentially um i mean it, there'd be ethical challenges to it right now that's for sure <laughs> yeah sure um to be, yeah i mean for, for the effects of the financial crisis and the um the amounts of money involved it I'm, sh- I'm sure I, mean, I won't be surprised that's not going on I know there's evidence that people there's a guy in New York who was prescribing traders like in the older traders or something testosterone patches to try and ameliorate this effect really? yeah <laughs> it doesn't work like that but um, that I saw some reports of that and that's that's a kind of problem um, I thought you were going to mention the because we did some other work to do with group interactions and group trading and to cut a long story short if you have groups of just men or just women you get can get quite or we got quite volatile markets whereas if you have mixed groups we got more stable markets mm. so I think I think from a perspective of trading and, and, and banks and stuff like that the way you get change and improvement there is based on the sort of incentives and if it makes more money for the bank or if it leads to a more sort of stable outcomes that's something they'll adopt so i don't think imposing quotas of you have to have this many men this many women and over different age ranges as well um i think it has to be evidence driven and if it works it works and so I, i i can see sort of some changes coming through like that potentially um and also the incentives in terms of i think prior to the financial crisis you had people who may make 200 million pounds one week or one day lose 100 million next make 5 million lose 150 million they'd still be up Mm. but the variability in their profit and losses is massive and i think you've got to offset that very that variability is the stuff that can kill you uh, in terms of a banking disaster because if if the variance is skewing all over the place it means there's a huge amount of risk that you could lose a, a, a huge chunk of money and someone who has less variance on a more kind of shallow trajectory is going to probably be a better longer term bet and you might maybe want more of those people but earning less money in the way mm. so it it depends how you manage that sort of risk portfolio and what you want to do. And I know they're sort of rewarding people after like three years, five years. So you, you cut out short-term incentives. And I think that's nearly always good because um, although someone might win big one year, it's, it may well be fluke. And so you're rewarding someone's luck rather than someone's skill. And you only want to record and re- reward skill. You're not interested in the luck. So if that person has a like big wins year on year, then yeah, you should invest heavily in them, 
more than usual. But if you just after one one data point, you don't re- you don't reward people on one data point. You mm. want to see like consistency, and that's the same in sport. That's why the the best players like Messi and Ronaldo are just totally consistent, and then streaky players are they're just less valuable because they, you you don't know when you're going to get it. Um, and I think I think that sort of consistency and stuff like that. That if that's what you want in the system, then that. You, you, these kind of areas, this kind of evidence could feed into that. Mm. I suppose with the banks, it's it really does have to come from the top, doesn't it? As a as a long term cultural mm. change, because the the financial crisis wasn't um, built up over three, five, even ten years. Mm. It was it went much deeper than that. Yeah. But, but the reality is that you know the manager, even a you know very senior manager at a bank, probably knows that, that they might have five or ten years in that role and in mm. those five years they're going to look at maximising yeah, the output yeah. exactly. in those five yeah. years which in the grand scheme of things is a short term yeah. move so it's uh, yeah yeah that's a problem it's, it's all, I mean, it's similar to politics you get the same short termism that's that's a, the shape of the system um, mm. I get what's going to be interesting about banking is that um, a lot of it is being automated and it's just um Robots to, talking to robots and running trades off things like that. So, the, the the number of people employed in the city, I can't remember. So over the last ten years, it's kind of a third less or something like that in financial transactions. Mm. So it is going to concentrate in a few people, and if you have far fewer people actually involved in it, then you can be like more selective in terms of a RF pilot sort of situation. Whereas if you if you've got half a million people, you can't select very easily. But if you've got like five hundred or something, then you can be really specific about them, and you can really do the numbers and work out who works best with who to get an efficient system. Then it's manageable. Yeah. Um, but that may be how it goes. Or mm. Maybe it'll just be all robots. <laughs> uh, I really like your point about um, consistency as well. Because if you take that and apply that to sports teams or you know even startup businesses, any business actually where you've got salespeople, um, I read an article recently about one of the New York, uh, sorry, not the New York, one of the NBA basketball teams. I can't remember which team it was mm. now, which is not particularly helpful. But they were talking about the coach there. He adopted a fairly. Um, uh, innovative approach to buying players but also picking players where they, they put a scorecard together that wasn't just um, you know the headline figures how many points have you scored they'd, they'd t- multiply that by minutes played and basically they would work out you know your average and if you are um, above average compa- by mm. comparison to the rest of the guys on your team or the rest of the guys in the NBA that's what you're looking for mm. um, on a consistent basis yeah. rather than you know the guy that comes in smashes it for a game or two and then mm. you know they, they disappear and it's yeah, exactly yeah. the same with, with sales guys you know you're only as good as your last performance you much prefer someone that turns up every day brings does the goods every day of the week you know, yeah. of the year um, versus someone who's a flash in the pan yeah yeah, no, absolutely. Because you, you can carry those guys who are 
flash in the pan and some or or like one big trade or something every so often um and if you've got people doing more consistent work but i think you only carry them if you think they are good for you might get more than one big trade out and one like big sale or something if it is just literally one <laughs> one day point that's that doesn't tell me anything because mm. it's it, it was just like just pure luck so you have to have like two or three to have a some kind of trend and then you think okay maybe you have six months you have nothing but every six months you put a big deal together that's a that's a different kind of thing but sure cool well look i i could talk all day long um, <laughs> yeah, um, about, about the here. brain and the mind and, and, and we could go down all sorts of rabbit holes but just uh, before we sort of wrap up there's a few things I want to ask you know, a bit more about you and your motivation mm-hmm. so how did you get to where you are in terms of you know, becoming a doctor in neuroscience is, is, was it something that was has been a passion of yours or, or did you kind of organically um, find yourself strolling down this road. Um, a bit organic and a bit a bit luck, I think. Um, I did physics as an undergrad, and then I just read a book about neuroscience and uh, just a pop science book. And I was really what was the book? It was a book called Mapping the Mind by Rita Carter. That was a good book and um, quite kind of general. Loads of interesting bits and pieces and I thought what really surprised me there was a big contrast with physics was that at that point physics um, probably still that textbooks have laws in them so it's a law it's like Newton's law so it's not this is not any negotiable thing I mean, this has been decided mm-hmm. a few hundred years ago um, and then the new work in physics was largely massive collaborations like at CERN or in astronomy you had to build a new telescope and things like that so you were going to be like a cog in a massive machine to 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 make to do things that are just absolutely incredible but um, on an individual scale it's difficult to make a big impact Um, and what I found interesting about that book and, and about neuroscience generally is that there are still opportunities to make a big impact and just having some like basic experimental psychology tasks on a laptop and showing them some patients and testing them you can just trip over something uh, amazing that you, no one knew about and a lot of the neuroscience textbooks just kind of end this is what we know about this uh, dot 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 but we're not really sure and it might not even be right and um, that's what's really interesting about it as a science is that it's really open and I think with like MRI and a lot of the kind of techniques and things like that come in the last 20 years or so it, it, it's exploded as a field because there's so much potential in it um, uh, and so much I say low hanging fruit but just um, there's not very much known it's yeah. really, it's really kind of open, and 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 it has kind of direct relevance. So I think there's a sort of combination of like it's really um, exploration and um, and kind of exciting 
uh, field to work in. I think for the, for those kind of reasons. So that's what sort of led me into studying and then and then doing a PhD and, and working in these areas and stuff. And what, where do you think, in terms of neuroscience, the biggest breakthroughs are going to be in the next, say, three to five years? Three to five years. Um, <laughs> I always like this question. Um, there are sort of a few things coming up so there's a big effort to kind of map the brain using huge quantities of data like structurally map it and it sounds sort of stupid but there are still arguments about is that area connected to that area like physically and a lot a lot of the data even the histology data where people have done dissections are from like a hundred years ago from like Carl and people like that and um so you can still have discussions go this area sort of lit up on this map and this one did in, in the scanner but we don't really know whether it's connected directly or through what and if there is a pathway we don't know what it's called and so you sort of think what well, is there everyone you must have worked it out but it's such a sort of detailed um organism um that like even the anatomy of it isn't clear so the, in these bigger studies collating huge amounts of data you can get far more precision about what areas connect what and then ha how everything interacts with each other in terms of these networks so that's like a bit of a kind of technological thing um, I do, it, in a sort of more existential <laughs> development I do sort of wonder how using like artificial intelligence and machine learning and things like that how that can be applied to neuroscience to make big inroads. These are more like technical inroads, mm. I guess, in a way. Um, I'm not sure. So are there any examples of that happening at the moment? Um, I'm just trying to think in neuroscience. I mean, for... I'll give you one example that's okay, and then a sort of reversed example. The... They're using machine learning to look at um, scans or radiology scans and things like that. And so you can classify scans as whether, whether there's a stroke or a lesion or something like that. Um, but the, 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 that's one thing, but the strength of that is that you can start pooling in tons and tons of data and look at thousands of patients and make connections across diseases and locations and just in a way that just individual people couldn't do or you literally would draw it by hands and that's still sort of done in a way lesion mapping people sort of by eye draw it and that's um that's that's gonna go because it's mm. not it's not reliable enough it's good but it's not reliable enough um but in the artificial intelligence what, what you do is you you get your classifying give it loads of images and tell it what they are and it learns and I saw a really nice reverse example of this, which was someone was doing a project and he got a participant to sit down and measure their brain activity with EEG, so it's just electrical signals, and told them, we're going to look at loads and loads of photos of the desert in Iran. And it was like an American-funded uh, project, the desert in Iraq, maybe. And they were looking for evidence of like a missile site or something like that 
and so you show this person these images but flick them through like really really quickly like five a second and you've just told the person look for the silos but they sort of can't really consciously process the images and so they sit there sort of blinking watching this flash through and then you go back to the EEG data and for some of the images there's like a spike uh, and then you go back to those images and you pull them out and those are the ones that have um, some trucks on the silo or whatever the target was you're looking for this wow. person couldn't tell you if they'd seen them or not Yeah. but you go back and look at the uh, electrical changes and there's like subtle spikes something like, hmm, is that? and then it's gone mm. um, and you go back and so you could almost you, you can use a person as a classifier, that's sort of how a classifier works but but an instantly programmable classifier. And I'm not sure that's not necessarily a fruit of neuroscience, but it was, um, it's just a really, I thought that was fascinating. That yeah. Because it's a computer like, person, you can just tell them what you're looking for, and then they they <laughs> look, they try and pay attention, but they can't tell you consciously whether it happened or not. So we are useful, really, but we just don't realise it. Yeah, yeah, in more <laughs> low-level ways. <Yeah. laughs> but That's brilliant. And, yeah. I mean, based on what you know about the brain which is much more than the vast vast majority of the um, population um are there if there was one thing that we absolutely should be doing as individuals oh is that as individuals yeah what what should we be doing um to look after our brain to look after our brains yeah um i think and this this is not a prescription but um i went on holiday to italy a few years ago and we stayed in a tiny little town and like in the morning about 11 o'clock like the old men of the town would come out and sit around chairs and they weren't really doing anything they were just sort of shouting at each other and then at lunchtime they'd disappear and have a lunch and have a nap and then come back in the evening sit down and just shout at each other and they didn't look fit and they were just eating whatever normal diet but um, they had twi- like kind of conscripted twice a day socialising mm. and I think that that probably preserves them longer than anything else I think to look after your brain. I think I think social interaction is such an all-rounder in terms of um, alerting, uh, and, it, and it hits like memory and attention and language and like all your favourites. And um, if you have to go somewhere to do it, even better because you get a bit of exercise. But exercise is good. But I don't think exercise is enough. I think cognitively like social interaction is so powerful and I think a lot of people certainly as they get older end up being a bit isolated and things like that and that is in itself depressing and the reverse of that is socialising and I I think actually that's probably like the best thing you can do you know don't don't smoke but that's that's great I mean I, I I really agree with you. There's, there's been a lot of. Um, actually, where was that in Italy? You said this is just somewhere in Italy, like southern Italy, we went. Right, some holiday. There, there. There's a similar thing that happens in, um, I think it's just in parts of Japan actually, where in the morning, um, 
Belgos and all of the schools at the same time and the villages they go out to public areas and they mm. they practice a bit of you know yoga yeah so it's like five maybe five ten minutes it's mm. not a huge amount of time but it gets everybody out it gets everybody moving mm. um but you hear about these blue zones that exist around the world that i don't know why they're called blue zones but it's basically pockets of populations who have lifespans well above mm. typical lifespans particularly mm. for the areas that they're they're in and and i think somebody you know there's been a few studies done on them there's 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 certain characteristics of these blue zones that are all over the world mm. different parts of the world but they've got similar things so one of them is um exercise but not exercise as we might think of it it's not intense strenuous exercise it's mm. you know i need to walk to the top of the hill each day to fill up this you know bucket of water yeah, and yeah. back down um so it's keeping yourself active or it's picking fruit or something like that um another is most of them have diets that are very very low in meat mm not necessarily excluding meat but it, it, it's low in meat um very high in vegetables but one of the biggest things that they all reported was the social bond and almost this commitment to look after all of the family mm. and all of the community right up until you know the day you die mm. um so even in, in almost all of these zones the eldest people whether they have family or not they have regular social interaction because it's just what the community does and i think that mm. chimes with exactly what yeah you were, yeah no what you were saying you mentioned smoking i was going to ask if there's one <laughs> thing if there's one thing we shouldn't be doing for our brains I'm watching tv what, um, oh yeah watching tv was a big one <laughs> no you can watch tv but just, i think uh i think i'm not even sure if it's worse it probably smoking is probably the worst isn't it? but um well, it's not really brain function it's kind of kill you before that but um yeah i'll go on i'll say sitting for like longer than two hours in the same place mm. sitting for four hours without moving um, it is really bad for you. So, get up in between, get up in the ad breaks or something. But sitting down for a long time is is just a killer. Uh, after and especially after like a big meal in the evening, sitting down. So you go through this sort of insulin rush, and you're kind of just mm. immobile, and uh, your kind of cardiovascular system is almost like at zero. And um, yeah, it's just the, the, all the evidence coming out is like that is really bad for you. So but, I but would that, not do that. I think what's really interesting about that is that that's something that most people would say you know, very quickly if we're looking at our physical health as a nation mm. and obesity. People say, "Oh, it's because you, you know, you sat around on the sofa for too long and you mm. know, we're a nation of of um, uh, slouches," but. Yeah you're saying actually the the mental and cognitive effects are almost as bad there's it's meant to be really bad and i don't think it's 
I don't think it's really an obesity thing either. I don't think it matters. I think, um, uh, yeah, just sitting for ages like that is um, the evidence is it's it's really bad for you. I, I mean, obesity is a different thing. That's that's basically sugar, um, but and, and and that's not good for you for for a kind of combination of different reasons as well. But but yeah, just just sitting and being inactive for ages is. It's just bad news, I think. Yeah, all right, great. Cool, well, look, I think that's a good place to wrap up. We probably need to stand up and take a stroll outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks a lot for the time. If people want to um, read your papers or mm-hmm. find out a little bit more about you online, where should they go? Um, it's just my name and then Imperial College, and that will come up, and then my papers are, should be linked on the... Uh, and I think they're open access as well so you should be able to download them so if they type in Dr Ed Roberts and Imperial College yeah, University should come up yeah alright great stuff we'll, we'll we'll put a link up on our website as well great yeah that'd be great cool. thank you alright cheers Ed no. people um thank you for listening to the show today i hope you enjoyed it um thank you also to our main sponsor vivid matcha (laughs) if you've got any questions for us feel free to to contact us you can check out our website it's vividmatcha.com we're on instagram at vividmatcha or on twitter at vividdrinks that one's different because the guys over there can't work out how to give us access to our account. Um, if you've got any suggestions of people you'd like us to talk to, uh, or if you'd like to chat to us yourself, of course, get in touch. Um, again, hope you enjoyed it and, uh, we'll see you soon.